Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. The murder of the McDonald family reported to the nation February 17th, 1970 by Walter Cronkite. On the Army post of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, some bizarre murders took place last night, which the base provost marshal says are reminiscent of the Sharon Tate case. The wife and two young daughters of Captain Jeffrey McDonald were stabbed to death. McDonald has been hospitalized with stab wounds. McDonald told military police the murderers were three men and a woman who invaded his family quarters, shouting, acid is great, kill the pigs. Army officials later found the word pig scrawled in blood on a bed. McDonald, a doctor, specializes in dealing with drug problems for the Army. After Jeffrey McDonald was indicted on three counts of murder, he appealed those indictments on the grounds that he did not get a speedy trial. Here is the actual oral arguments before the United States Supreme Court January 9th, 1978. We'll hear arguments next in uh, United States against MacDonald. I think you may proceed when you're ready, Mr. Geller. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court granted certiorari in this case to resolve two important issues of federal criminal law. The first is whether a defendant may appeal prior to trial from the denial of his motion to dismiss an indictment on speedy trial grounds. The second issue, which need only be reached if the Court holds that such interlocutory appeals are permissible, is whether the period after criminal charges against the defendant have been dismissed, but before the same or related charges are reinstituted against him, should be considered in determining whether the defendant has been deprived of his right to a speedy trial. The facts are as follows. In the early morning of February 17, 1970, 
Respondent's wife and two small daughters were clubbed and stabbed to death in Respondent's apartment on the Fort Bragg Military Reservation in North Carolina, where Respondent was assigned as a medical doctor. Respondent, who also suffered some wounds, notified the military police of the attacks, claiming that he and his family had been assaulted by four so-called hippies who had apparently been under the influence of drugs. Respondent at first was viewed as a victim rather than as a suspect. However, after an intensive but incomplete investigation of the crimes had been conducted by the CID, the Army's Criminal Investigative Unit, it became apparent that many aspects of Respondent's version of the attacks and of his subsequent actions upon discovering his family's bodies could not be squared with the preliminary laboratory analysis of the physical evidence of the crime scene. In April 1970, therefore, Respondent was warned that he was a suspect in the murders, was advised of his rights by military authorities, and was confined to the military reservation by his immediate commanding officer. Three weeks later, Respondent was formally charged by his commander with three specifications of murder. As required by Article 32 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, an officer, Colonel Warren Rock, was appointed to investigate the matter and to recommend whether the charges should be referred by the post commander to a general court-martial for trial. After considering the evidence in the case over the next several months, Colonel Rock recommended that the charges against respondent be dismissed, but that further investigation of the murders be undertaken by the appropriate civilian authorities. This recommendation was accepted by the commanding general of respondent's unit, who dismissed all charges against respondent in October 1970. Two months later, in December 1970, respondent was granted an honorable discharge by the Army. Following respondent's release from the military, the Department of Justice requested the CID to continue its investigation of the case. The CID did so, and in June 1972, it submitted a massive 13-volume report to the Department which was supplemented by further reports in November 1972 and August 1973. Respondent was eventually indicted on three counts of murder in January 1975 by a grand jury of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of North Carolina. Respondent moved to dismiss the indictment on a number of grounds, including double jeopardy and denial of a Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial. The District Court denied each of these motions in July 1975 and scheduled Respondent's trial to begin in August 1975. Respondent instead took an immediate appeal to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. That court held that it had jurisdiction over Respondent's double jeopardy claim under its decision in the United States against Lansdowne, a decision subsequently approved by this court in Abney against the United States and that respondent's speedy trial claim was also a proper subject for pretrial appellate review because it involved a fundamental constitutional right because it was, quote, pendant to the double jeopardy claim and closely related to it, and because the court believed that its ruling on the issue would expedite the ultimate resolution of what it viewed as an extraordinary case. What cases from this court did the Fourth Circuit cite to support its concept of pendant jurisdiction over the, other, over the speedy trial claim? My recollection, Mr. Justice Rehnquist, is that it cited none. That aspect of the uh, Court of Appeals decision is at page 5A of the uh, appendix to the petition. The Court then concluded on the merits that Respondent had denied a speedy trial on the merits. 
because of the delay of more than four and a half years between his arrest by the Army in May 1970 and his federal indictment in January 1975. It viewed as of no significance for Sixth Amendment purposes that respondent had not been under any criminal charges for more than four years of that period. Now, the threshold question in this case is whether the Court of Appeals had jurisdiction to review respondent's pretrial appeal from the denial of his speedy trial motion. We submit that it did not. Under the controlling jurisdictional statute, 28 U.S.C. 1291, the Courts of Appeals may review only final decisions of the district courts, a phrase that this Court has consistently construed to bar piecemeal appeals before final judgment. Adherence to this rule of finality has been particularly stringent in criminal cases because the delays and disruptions caused by interlocutory appeals are especially inimical to the effective administration of the criminal law. Respondent, of course, does not claim that the pretrial denial of his motion to dismiss the indictment on speedy trial grounds was a final decision in the sense that it terminated the proceedings against him in the district court. Obviously, the Court's ruling only allowed the case to proceed to trial, where a number of other factors may have led to a dismissal or an acquittal. Rather, Respondent contends that the denial of a speedy trial motion is immediately appealable before trial under the so-called collateral order exception to the final judgment rule. Could the speedy trial claim have been presented anew to the district court in a motion for judgment NOV or judgment of acquittal at the conclusion of the — if a guilty verdict had been returned? Yes, we — it can. It can as a — and it's our position that that would be the preferable way in which to present it, because as I'll get to in a moment, it's often impossible to rule on such a motion until you see what the evidence is at trial, because frequently the defendant's contentions will be that he's been prejudiced in his ability to defend himself by the delay that might have been caused by the government. And it's only after trial that such a claim can be intelligently assessed. Now, this Court most recently applied the collateral order doctrine last term in Abney against the United States in holding that the courts of appeals have jurisdiction under Section 1291 to entertain an interlocutory appeal from the denial to dismiss an indictment because of double jeopardy. In reaching that conclusion, the Court stressed that the trial judge's pretrial denial of the double jeopardy motion constituted a complete, formal, and final rejection of the Fifth Amendment claim in the district court, that the claim by its very nature was wholly collateral to and separable from the issues to be litigated at the trial, and that, of most importance, the protections conferred on an accused by the double jeopardy clause would be significantly undermined if appellate review had to wait until after conviction, because the double jeopardy clause protects an individual not only against being punished twice for the same offense, but also against being tried twice for that offense. That aspect of the constitutional right could not be vindicated by reversal of any conviction obtained at the second trial and would be irreparably lost unless an immediate pretrial appeal were permitted. And we've explained at some length in our brief why the denial prior to trial of a speedy trial motion, unlike the denial of a double jeopardy motion, is not normally a final rejection of the claim in the district court, because, as I just explained in response to the question by Mr. Justice Rehnquist, an intelligent application of the Barker v. Wingo standards often may not be possible before trial. For many of the same reasons, speedy trial claims, again, unlike double jeopardy claims, are not wholly collateral to the matters to be raised at trial, because only after the trial can it be determined whether the defendant has truly been prejudiced by the pretrial delay. Respondent has not seriously disputed these contentions in his brief. 
Instead, he asserts that the Sixth Amendment Speedy Trial Clause, just like the Fifth Amendment Double Jeopardy Clause, creates a so-called right not to be tried, a right which, to be effective, requires recognition of a concomitant right to immediate appellate review. But there's little to support this assertion. As the language of the Sixth Amendment suggests, it's the delay before trial, and not the trial itself, that violates the constitutional guarantee. The concern of the Sixth Amendment is not the trial, but any delay surrounding it. If the pertinent factors identified in Barker v. Wingo coalesce in a particular case to deprive a defendant of his right to a speedy trial, that violation, by definition, must have occurred prior to the beginning of the trial. Hence, unlike the situation in Abney, proceeding with the trial itself would not cause or compound the constitutional deprivation. By the same token, and again by contrast to the Fifth Amendment protection against double jeopardy, the effectiveness of appellate review of speedy trial claims is not diminished in any way by awaiting the outcome of the trial. This Court has identified three interests of a defendant that the Speedy Trial Clause is designed to protect. First, to prevent oppressive pretrial incarceration. Second, to minimize pretrial anxiety and concern of the accused. And third, to limit the possibility that the defense will be impaired by the loss of evidence. It's obvious that no remedy, whenever offered, can truly undo or alleviate the annoyances or anxieties that a defendant may have suffered while awaiting trial. But the reversal of a defendant's conviction after trial would be equally as effective as the dismissal of his indictment before trial to compensate that defendant for any emotional harm he may have suffered, and would also be equally as effective as a means of punishing the government for the delay. Similarly, a defendant's interest in avoiding a conviction based on lost evidence or dimmed memories can be fully protected by a reversal of any conviction procured after a period of unconstitutional pretrial delay. Thus, deferring appeal of a rejected speedy trial claim until after trial presents a question not of rights, but solely of remedies. Any Sixth Amendment violation can be remedied as well after trial as before. Now, since speedy trial claims thus do not satisfy any of the criteria of the collateral order doctrine, there's no justification for countenancing a breach of the normal rules against interlocutory appeals in criminal cases for such claims. Indeed, there are strong reasons why, in our view, it would be especially inappropriate to allow defendants to take interlocutory immediate appeals from the district court's denial of their speedy trial motions. That is because the speedy trial clause, unlike the double jeopardy clause, or indeed unlike any of the other protections of the Bill of Rights, is designed as much to foster the interests of society in the expeditious resolution of criminal cases as to confer protections upon individual defendants. As this Court observed in Barker v. Wingo, the societal interest in providing a speedy trial exists not only separate from, but at times also in opposition to the interests of the accused. Thus, even if some of the interests protected by the speedy trial clause might be furthered by allowing pretrial appellate review of Sixth Amendment claims in an occasional case, other equally important interests protected by the clause would be severely frustrated by the often substantial delays in the disposition of criminal cases that would inevitably accompany such appeals. There would certainly be a pretrial review if the shoe were on the other foot, would there not? If uh, the defendant had moved uh, that the indictment be dismissed because to try him now would violate his right to a speedy trial, the government, yes, the should, government, could, the government could surely appeal that, couldn't it? That's correct. 
but not under Section 1291, under Section 3731 from the dismissal of an indictment. And that clearly is a final order. There's nothing further that would happen in the case unless an appeal were to be pursued. In fact, this case graphically illustrates the point I was making about delay. The district court denied respondents' motions to dismiss the indictment in July 1975 and scheduled his trial to begin a few weeks later. Pretrial litigation over respondents' speedy trial claims has yet to be resolved, more than two years after his trial would have ended but for the piecemeal appeal. In addition, permitting pretrial appeal of speedy trial claims would allow defendants a ready method of obtaining a continuance of their trials, and delay is unfortunately not an uncommon defense tactic. We recognize, of course, that this Court in Abney was not persuaded by the argument that defendants might take dilatory appeals in double jeopardy cases. The Court believed that the courts of appeals could easily weed out and dispose summarily of truly frivolous claims. While this is perhaps true in double jeopardy cases, there are two reasons why it's exceedingly unlikely to be true with respect to speedy trial claims. The first is that it's much more difficult to allege a plausible double jeopardy violation. There must be some showing that the defendant has once before been in jeopardy of federal conviction on the same or related charges. Very few defendants can make or even approach that showing. By contrast, it would be the rare defendant who could not present a colorable speedy trial claim, since there will be in every case some period of delay between his arrest or indictment and trial. And possible prejudice, as this Court remarked in the United States against Marion, is inherent in any delay, however short. Secondly, it's much easier for courts of appeals to spot and adjudicate an insubstantial double jeopardy claim quickly. It involves merely a question of law, generally on undisputed facts. Speedy trial claims, on the other hand, call for a delicate and often difficult case-by-case assessment of a number of variables, such as the reasons for the delay and the prejudice suffered as a result of the delay. Whether these factors make out a constitutional violation in any particular case may not be possible to determine without the aid of full briefing and oral argument. In short, we submit that speedy trial claims are precisely the type of claims that should be subject to the final judgment rule, and that the Court of Appeals erred in hearing respondents' speedy trial appeal prior to trial. I'd like to turn briefly in the few minutes remaining to the merits of respondents' speedy trial. Mr. Geller, before you turn to the merits, in this case, the district court denied a double jeopardy motion as well as a speedy trial motion. That's correct. And the appeal presented both issues to the Court of Appeals, but the Court of Appeals didn't decide the double jeopardy issue. That's correct. Why doesn't the appeal on the double jeopardy issue support review of the speedy trial issue? Well, this Court in Abney was faced with a similar situation. In Abney, you'll recall, not only was there an appeal of a double jeopardy claim, but the defendants also claimed that the indictment failed to state an offense. The district court denied that motion. They took an appeal of that also before trial. This Court held that the Court of Appeals had no jurisdiction over that aspect of the defendant's appeal because each issue must meet its own independent appealability standards. There's no concept of pendant jurisdiction has no role to play under the collateral order doctrine. Now, as to the merits of Respondent's Sixth Amendment claim, as I noted at the outset, this Court need not reach it if it agrees with us that the Court below lacked jurisdiction over Respondent's pretrial appeal. Now, as the Court of Appeals acknowledged, and indeed as Respondent concedes, no significant delay, and certainly no delay approaching constitutional magnitude, occurred in this case between January 1975, when Respondent was indicted, 
and August 1975 when his trial was set to begin. The Court of Appeals holding that respondent was deprived of his right to a speedy trial thus plainly rests on the premise that respondent's Sixth Amendment right attached in the spring of 1970 when he was arrested by the Army and that his right continued unabated until August 1975, even though all of the military charges against respondent had been dismissed and he had been released from all restraints on his liberty in October of 1970. The Court below has therefore reached the insupportable and quite incongruous conclusion that in the four years between the dismissal of the military charges against respondent and his indictment, respondent was entitled to insist upon a prompt resolution of the charges against him, and the federal government was obliged by the Sixth Amendment to afford him a speedy trial on those charges, despite the fact that absolutely no criminal charges were pending against him during any part of that period. This holding we submit is flatly inconsistent not only with the very language of the Sixth Amendment, which talks about an accused in a criminal prosecution, but also with this Court's analysis of that provision in the United States against Marion. In Marion, the Court held that the particular protections of the Sixth Amendment did not extend to the period before an individual had been formally accused of a crime, either by arrest or indictment. Even though that individual may have been aware for an extended period of time prior to his indictment that he was under official investigation, and even though he may have suffered severe, harmful, emotional, and financial consequences as a result of that investigation. It is, we believe, the logical corollary of these conclusions that his defendant's Sixth Amendment rights also do not continue after a criminal proceeding against him has been terminated by a complete dismissal of the charges. At that point, just like in advance of formal accusation, the individual does not stand publicly accused of any crime and his liberty is in no way restricted. His situation, as the Court observed in Marion, does not compare with that of a defendant who has been arrested and held to answer. Now, respondents' only response to these arguments is the assertion that his case is essentially indistinguishable from that in Klopfer against North Carolina in 386 U.S. Klopfer, however, presented the question, and I'm quoting from page 214 of the Court's opinion, whether authorities, quote, may indefinitely postpone prosecution on an indictment without stated justification over the objection of an accused. The unusual North Carolina procedure in Klopfer allowed the state prosecutor to postpone prosecution indefinitely on an indictment that he did not wish to pursue immediately. The upshot was that since the indictment was not dismissed during the waiting period, the statute of limitations remained told and the defendant remained under formal public accusation and under the constant threat of prosecution at the option of the government. This court held that the state procedure violated Klopfer's right to a speedy trial, but only because, as the court stated at page 222, the suspension of his prosecution, quote, indefinitely prolonged the oppression as well as the anxiety and concern accompanying public accusation. Respondent, of course, was not under any public accusation between October 1970 and January 1975. Nothing in Klopfer, therefore, supports an extension of the speedy trial clause to the period when an individual is not the subject of any pending criminal charges. I should add one final point. The, the conclusion that respondents' Sixth Amendment rights were not violated by the five-year period between the murders of his family in 1970 and his indictment for those crimes in 1975 certainly does not suggest that the propriety of that delay 
is beyond judicial scrutiny. There's first the protection of the statute of limitations, which is, of course, the primary guarantee against the bringing of overly stale criminal charges. But there's no suggestion that the statute was violated here. Moreover, as this court observed in Marion and reaffirmed last term in United States against Lavasco, the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment is an additional protection against unreasonable pre-indictment delay. A lengthy delay prior to accusation violates due process if it causes actual prejudice to the defense and if the government's justification for the delay is inadequate. Although the Court of Appeals did not undertake this analysis, we believe that the district court and the dissenting judge in the Court of Appeals correctly found that the due process clause was not violated in this case. Indeed, respondent does not contend otherwise. Respondent has never claimed that the government's delay in this case was designed to prejudice his defense or was occasioned by tactical reasons. And as we've set forth at some length in our main and reply briefs, there's not the slightest proof at this pretrial stage that respondent's defense has actually been prejudiced by the delay. We therefore submit that the court should vacate the judgment of the Court of Appeals with instructions to dismiss respondent's speedy trial claim for lack of jurisdiction so that this case may finally proceed to trial. Chief Justice, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. You mean to dismiss the appeal from the speedy trial claim? That's correct. Mr. Siegel. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I ask the Court's indulgence, if I may, at the outset, if you will bear with me if I also pass over the facts slightly in this case. It seems to me that the Solicitor General's argument has uh, consciously averted some rather, I think, poignant and significant findings. Not my facts, if Your Honors pleases, but the facts found by the Court of Appeals and the facts found in the most extraordinary military proceeding that precipitated this case in 1970. The case does start in February the 17th, 1970, with the murders of the McDonald family, the wife and children. The wounds that Dr. McDonald referred to by the solicitor, of course, were testified to at the military proceedings by both the government's doctors and the defense doctors as being life-threatening wounds. The reason for it, of course, was that one of the government's multiple theories of trying to explain the case was that these were self-inflicted by the accused, Dr. McDonald, to cover up uh, murders that he had committed. In fact, the record failed to support that, and the conclusion of the military presiding officer in 1970 was that Dr. McDonald had told the truth. Those were his words. Most extraordinarily, which the government has referred to at great length are the facts from this 1970 military proceeding, is that nowhere in the Solicitor General's brief, nowhere in the Solicitor General's argument, does he share with the court the two and the only two findings that were made by the military. How does the military establishment's finding uh, bear on uh, indictment uh, later brought by civil authorities? If Your Honor pleases, both of these proceedings, both the military proceeding in 1970 and the proceeding in the Federal District Court, were proceedings by the same sovereign, the United States. There is not a separate sovereignty situation here. It's a continuum. This is a continuous prosecution of Dr. McDonald by the United States. As a matter of fact, 
as if I may, when I get into my argument. Under two wholly different systems of justice, however, are they not? That's right, if Your Honor pleases. The military code is one, and the civilian code is quite another, isn't it? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. I might just point out that, as a matter of fact, it was the election of the government as to which of these two systems it might go to. At the very outset of the case, the investigation was being pursued by both the FBI, the Justice Department, and the military authorities. And it was the Justice Department that participated in the ultimate decision that the prosecution should be brought initially in the military system rather than in the civilian courts. If I may, though, if Your Honor pleases, I did want to share with the Court, and I don't mean to prolong the discussion on the facts, but I think they are essential to an understanding of this case. There were only two findings at the end of the Article 32 proceedings. This was the longest Article 32 proceeding in the history of the military justice system. It was not a trial, was it? Beg your pardon, Your Honor? It was not a trial. We do not, because of the special circumstance, consider it to be a trial. No, Your Honor. That is an issue, of course, which develops on the double jeopardy argument, which the Court of Appeals said had merit but reserved any decision on and therefore has not been decided and is not before this Court at this time. And then what bearing does it have here? The military proceeding was not a trial. It was just an investigation. No, if Your Honor pleases, the Article 32. It was just an investigation, wasn't it? Your Honor, I would not – I do not think that's a correct characterization, Justice Marshall. I do not think so. Well, was he at any time subject to be sentenced by this hearing? No, Your Honor, not the Article 32 proceeding that we're talking about. Is that the only one we're talking about? The Article – if I may respond, Your Honor, in this way, the Article 32 proceeding encompasses more than just the phase that I'm now referring to. The proceeding encompasses then an adjudication at the conclusion of it by the convening authority. Again, we're talking about issues that relate to double jeopardy case. And the conclusion is that we shall not call a general court. That's all it says. It either says we will or we won't have a general court. Well, has it changed? I beg your pardon? Has it changed or is that what it does? The language of the formal order at the conclusion of the military proceeding was to dismiss the charges. But that was a formal piece of language which did not take cognizance of what the Uniform Code of Military Justice required to be found by Colonel Rock. At the end, if Your Honor pleases, at the end of a proceeding that spans something nearly six months with a 2,000-page record with 90 pages of findings and summary of the evidence, Colonel Rock made two findings. First of all, that the charges were not true. Those are the words of the finding. This is not like a civilian court in which probable cause or the lack thereof is the issue. It is a different and unique standard in the military system. And his findings were that the charges against Dr. McDonald were not true. The second finding was, contrary as to what the solicitor suggests, that there be further investigation by the civilian authorities, the finding was that a named woman uncovered by the defense as being specifically involved and present at the murder scene should be the person investigated by the civilian authorities, not Dr. McDonald, as I think is the seeming implication of the way the solicitor presented this morning. Going beyond that. Kennedy. Is that any more than a conclusion of an investigatory authority, as Justice Marshall has suggested? The finding. That's not a trial. No, Your Honor. It's not a trial. He was not exposed to jeopardy, was he? Not by virtue of being before Colonel Rock, no. 
Jeopardy attached, Your Honor, if we, uh, again, it is the argument that we think uh, has not been decided by the Fourth Circuit, clearly has not been reserved. Jeopardy attached when Colonel, when Major General Flanagan entered his final order. He was the authority. He was the equivalent of a district judge ordering, entering a final order. But again, that is beyond, I think, the scope of the case before this court. Let me pass, if Your Honor pleases, just to the other uh, part of the facts that I wanted to uh, make reference to. and that is, do these facts shed light on wh- why your claim of denial of speedy trial was appealable to the Court of Appeals? Uh, no, Your Honor, please, I can proceed if you will. Uh, no, you shape your own argument, which is certainly your privilege. I hope you will address that point sometime during the 30 minutes that's allotted to you. I thoroughly intend to, Your Honor, and I appreciate your suggestion. But I do think that uh, it is necessary to understand the case, because even the government itself has said in prior memorandum filed with this court, that this is a unique case, an extraordinary case on its facts, and I think the facts required some touching. If I may then proceed to the question, though, of the appealability of the denial of the Dr. McDonald's motion for speedy trial prior to trial. It seems to me that what the Court of Appeals did in accepting this case was neither extraordinary or out of line with the prior decision that it rendered itself in Lansdowne and with, in fact, the concepts that were approved by this court originally in Cohen versus Beneficial Loan Company in 1949 and reaffirmed by this court in Abney. Conceptually, they are the same. If Your Honor pleases, I think that the Court of Appeals, Judge Buster, writing for the majority, made the point very clear when it said this is one of the small classes, small class of rights that must be reviewed in criminal cases pre-trial. The claim in this case is clearly collateral. The order in this case, and I'm not necessarily saying that every order in every speedy trial case, but clearly the order in this case was a final order. There was a need, and the Court of Appeals so found, for an immediate appellate review of this case because the right would probably be lost forever. And clearly, the Court of Appeals found, as in Cohen, who set forth one of the criteria, that the right was too important to be denied an immediate review. Now, on the issue of the collateralness of the speedy trial issue, which I think is the threshold question, I don't ask the court to accept my words. I ask the court to accept the words of the government. Because in Marion, in the United States versus Marion, it was precisely the words of the government to this court in arguing why the government should be allowed to appeal the granting of a motion by a defendant to dismiss an indictment for denial of a speedy trial and where the defendant on the appeal to this court challenged the ability of the government to seek review but didn't here. the government also cited the statute, didn't it? Yes, Your Honor, the government cited the statute, but the argument... Where is your statute? Your Honor, please, where we believe... 1291, we think, is the correct statute in this case, that this is a final order, appealable under that statute. The Court of Appeals so found, and I think the Court of Appeals' reasoning is clearly consonant with the reasoning of this court in Abney. Now, if I might just simply refer, though, Your Honor, I think it's important to understand whether or not this issue is collateral to simply what the government said in describing collateralness in the Marion case. In Marion, the government used exactly, uh, if I may, from the government's brief in Marion, used precisely these words. It said, the defendant does not deny that he had committed the acts charged or that those acts constitute a crime. But nevertheless, he urges that he cannot be prosecuted because of some, and the word used here was extraneous factor, such as the tolling of the statute of limitations or the denial of a speedy trial. In its reply brief, the government 
returns to his description of the speedy trial claim and says such a plea sets up by way of defense a claim that bars conviction whether or not the defendant is guilty. And this court, Mr. Justice White, writing for the court in Marion, echoes exactly the same language. It says it is independent of the issues of guilt or innocent. The question in speedy trial is not in any way connected with the trial evidence. It is connected simply with the issue of whether or not the government has improperly delayed for an excessive period of time. Mr. Siegel, may I interrupt you just a moment, Mr. Siegel? Under your analysis, if I understand it, every speedy trial claim would be appealable because that that argument could always be made. But the Fourth Circuit didn't didn't take that view. They said usually you should wait till after trial, but this case is different. I don't understand what the Court of Appeals was saying, and maybe you can... Are you taking the position that they're always appealable or just sometimes, and if so, when? In view of the decision of this Court, Mr. Justice Stevens, in Abney, I think that speedy trial claims are appealable as a matter of right as being part of this small class of criminal cases referred to in Cohen and referred to, again, in Abney. I would suggest to the Court that the bugaboo raised that somehow we're going to open the floodgates to a lot of frivolous speedy trial claims is, again, unsupported by the facts or the rationality. Let me point out several things. First of all, there have been 29 years that have elapsed since the Cohen Doctrine was first articulated, which means that for 29 years, defendants and defense lawyers in criminal cases apparently are to presume to be aware that they could have sought interlocutory appeals from the denial of speedy trial claims by district courts. As the government points out in its brief, there are only two reported cases that we can find in the 29 years of the Cohen case. It does not indicate some great landmark abuse by the by by district courts, by lawyers or by courts of appeal reviewing these matters. Would you be interested in knowing about how many petitions for certiorari we get raised in the speedy trial case? I would think, Your Honor, that that will not be changed in any way by the ruling this case. Well, I'd like to cut it down. May I point out, Your Honor, that in fact, there is no floodgate to be opened in this case because the floodgate is open already. The truth of the matter is that any defendant who is denied his or her motion for a speedy trial by district court under the procedures presently intact and which will not be affected by any decision in this case can go to the Court of Appeals with a writ of mandamus. The only difference between that and what we're talking about now is the notice of appeal is a shorter form. There's less to be said. It does not take much for the defendant or defendant's lawyer to propose a writ of mandamus. I assume that the bar would not be interested in trying out everything on a writ of mandamus. The assumption, Your Honor, I would assume that. I hope I'm right. I would also assume something else, Mr. Justice Marshall, which is namely that I don't think that if this court carefully articulates the type of speedy trial claims that are worthy of pretrial consideration, that is, that meet the Cohen standard, that I think the bar would also be perceptive enough to see that. But I'm assuming as the government's dark view of this case, if I may, the dark view is something along the lines. Has this court ever sanctioned review of a denial of speedy trial claim by writ of mandamus? There is no case that I am aware of, Your Honor, but there is nothing in the law of mandamus that prohibits a defendant. It's clear the defendant can file a writ of mandamus to the Court of Appeals and seek it. I don't think there's anything in the law that prevents a lawyer from filing a writ of mandamus to stop a judge from breathing. I suppose that's a privilege that I should assume, Your Honor. But I assume that it's done with reason. 
Yes, Your Honor. I, and I assume that if you want to have mandamus, you can show us a case on it. What I'm suggesting, Your Honor, is that mandamus, in fact, does lie, and that the fact that lawyers have exercised now, discretion. In your cases, which case? That are, I do not have it in my brief. I would be glad to submit you it to the court. You have a mandamus case on speedy trial. I think that the law of mandamus clearly is well, there. You have a case on that. Not at my fingertips, and if I may, with Your Honor's permission, I would prefer, appreciate an opportunity to submit authorities after the argument. But I do suggest to the court that mandamus lies. It, even the most frivolous, even assuming Your Honor's position that mandamus doesn't lie, what does it stop the lawyer from doing it? And well, assuming Mr. That the court Siegel, on mandamus, the question would be one of law, whether the judge had the authority to deny the motion. And he always has the authority to deny it. You wouldn't review the question with the merits on mandamus. Perhaps I have inadequately stated my position, Mr. Justice Stevens. All I'm suggesting to the court is not that mandamus may or may not be the proper form. What I'm suggesting is that if lawyers want to badger appellate courts, they already have the format to do with it. Let's assume that mandamus doesn't lie. It doesn't mean that lawyers may not erroneously proceed that way, and being denied by courts of appeal may not erroneously petition this court for certiorari. What I'm simply trying to respond to is not to argue the merits or lack of merits of mandamus as a form of relieving this problem, but what I want to point out to you, I think, is essentially the specious nature of the suggestion that if this court were to conclude that the rationality of the speedy trial— Mr. You're seriously arguing that if we hold that such an order is appealable, that there won't be a lot of appeals? I think in a seminal— You really think that? I think in a seminal period until the courts of appeals handle the cases I will suggest to you. I don't think that every speedy trial argument, every speedy trial claim merits a full argument. The court is perfectly capable, all courts of appeals are perfectly capable of reading the papers and without argument determining which are without merit. I have practiced, Your Honor, please, in federal criminal courts for something like 18 years. I didn't need the Cohen case to tell me it was unwise to take interlocutory appeals in criminal cases. We knew that the courts of appeals, we all experienced the courts of appeals, the filing of a paper, the filing of a government's one-and-a-half-page motion to dismiss or on the law of the merits, and an answer from the court throwing out an unmerited appeal. All I'm saying is I would hope this court would not be led astray by the government's courts. Just one other question, if I may, Mr. Siegel. Your point, if I understand it, is that the speedy trial claim is appealable if it has merit. No, Your Honor. My point is that the speedy trial claim within the meaning of Cohen as rearticulated in Abney is that speedy trial is one of what I would say are only three claims that are appealable in an interlocutory phase in criminal cases. Always appealable. Yes, Your Honor. And those three aspects. Those three are double jeopardy, speedy trial, what's the third? Bail. Stack versus Boyle. Well, why wouldn't you? No, Your Honor. That is clear that it's not. It is not an issue. You made it as an allegation that the grand jury was not properly impounded and no member of the grand jury was a live person. You can't get that to the court of appeals no way. Am I right? I do not think as it stands now, Your Honor. That's right. But you can bring this up. Suppose a defendant reports to appeal a denial of his motion which has two parts to it. One, there was inordinate pre-indictment delay which had violated my constitutional rights. There was an inordinate delay after indictment, between indictment and trial, which violated my right to speedy trial. Wouldn't you say both of those are appealable under your submission? No, Your Honor, please. That is not my submission. I would offer a lesser submission. What I'm talking about here is the Sixth Amendment issue 
the pre-indictment delay. I know, but his due process motion is also based on the proposition that the trial shouldn't take place at all. The difficulty is, though, Your Honor, is the finality issue. If we're using the Cohen standard, Cohen requires there would be a finality. In this particular case, there was finality because the district judge entered a very specific order and wrote an opinion. And his opinion was that in this case, the running there, in order to be a speedy trial right under the Sixth Amendment, there had to be a public accusation. On that score, the judge was right and was upheld, and that language was correctly found by the Court of Appeals. But he erred, and the Court of Appeals found the error when he said that the public accusation in this case had not taken place until January 1975 when the indictment was returned. As Judges Bustner and Russell found in the Court of Appeals, the public accusation had taken place in April of 1970, in May of 1970, when the government called a press conference and announced the formal charges. In this case, there is nothing further that a trial can add. There is nothing that can be shown by a trial. Nothing will happen before Judge Dupree, the district judge, in any way can alter the speedy trial claim because he is held as a matter of law that the speedy trial claim in this case ran only from January 25, 1975. We have no argument, no quarrel with that date and proceeding to the proceeding of the district court. Our quarrel is the five years delay found by the Court of Appeals to be absolutely unjustified, absolutely without rational explanation, except, if Your Honor pleases, the one offered by the government below. The Court of Appeals found and quoted at length the statement by government's counsel in January 1975 at preliminary proceedings in this case. When asked by the United States Magistrate, what is it that took five years to restart this case again, it having started back in April of 1970, in a moment of candor all too often not heard, government's counsel said it was bureaucracy. What happened was, he said to the magistrate, and it was repeated again later on, what happened, Your Honor, was we needed the FBI laboratory to do some of the laboratory technical work, and bureaucracy prevented us from 1970 to 75 from getting the FBI laboratory. That is the reason. Now, I might say in its brief to this Court, the government has shifted now to what is now its third position on what caused the delay in this case. I must say something. I am profoundly surprised that counsel for the government would get up to this Court and say, and see, the McDonald case itself is an absolute example of the delays that defendants could bring. I have set forth at page 40 the proceedings in which the government has dragged its foot, been late, extended time, and doubled extended time, asked for unprecedented extensions of time to file motions and briefs that are not allowed in the Court of Appeals, has asked for double time to file petitions for extension with this Court. It's set out in the footnote in page 40. Why? In the name of heaven. In this of all the cases where the government has really nothing to say for its delay, except the words of the government's attorney who said bureaucracy, they would suggest that the McDonald case is the one which is an example. To the contrary, the Court of Appeals found that there were two and a half years in this case in which absolutely nothing of significance took place in the Justice Department. The chronology of this case was that the charges were finally dismissed in October of 1970. Now, we contend, it's our position, if Your Honor please, that those dismissals by General Flanagan constitutes double jeopardy. But since that's not the issue here, arguendo, we'll take the government's position that it was not final. 
the government, in fact, proceeded reasonably promptly after that dismissal to restart the investigation. In January of 71, which is less than two and a half months later, a new team of military investigators were assigned. As a matter of fact, ten investigators were assigned full-time for one year. They worked until December of 71. We find no fault with that proceeding. In the course of those 11 and a half months, they re-interviewed every witness in this case. They re-interviewed 699 witnesses. They did a reinvestigation job. We don't find any fault with that, either to the Court of Appeals. But from December of 1971 until the return of the indictment, there is no significant activity by the government, nothing that justifies it. The investigators took about six months to write a report. That, even that, was in the hands of the Justice Department in June of 1972. Again, the Court of Appeals thought it was interesting to read the government's own words, not only the bureaucracy explanation, but the Court of Appeals made reference to the affidavit given by the government of Kevin Maroney, an assistant attorney general in the criminal division. Maroney was purporting to explain why, once this mass of data, two complete sets of investigations, thorough work by every member of the military involved, why the Justice Department then did nothing from June of 1972 until the grand jury was convened in August of 74. And in the affidavit of Mr. Maroney, the Court of Appeals cited, we had this report, and we assigned it to lawyers, and we reassigned it. Those are Mr. Maroney's words. We assigned it, and we reassigned it. Who reviewed it and re-reviewed it. And nobody made a decision. No one did anything. As a matter of fact, the Solicitor General concedes in his argument, and I, he knows it's the facts, and we know it's the facts. Only two pieces of investigative work took place after December 1971. They're explaining their brief. They are trivial, have nothing to do with the merits of the case. Nothing was happening. What really was the explanation was that no one wanted to make a decision. That's clear from the findings. We can tell you we know that's the reason it was possible to make a decision by three independent pieces of evidence. One, Colonel Rock had to make a finding in this case, Your Honors. He had sat through six months of proceedings. He had a 2,000-page record. In five weeks, he prepared a 90-page summary of findings and conclusions in detail which have never been challenged, which the government accepts. He made a decision in five weeks. Later on, a new U.S. attorney took over this case in the Eastern District of North Carolina. Now, he took over a whole office. He was not even in the office prior to his taking that position. In a matter of four months, he not only took control of his office, he finished a 56-page report to the Justice Department and said, I want to go ahead and prosecute McDonald. Send me a trial lawyer. What in March of 1972 did the Justice Department do? It sent it to another lawyer to review the report. He had just finished a 56-page evaluation. The Justice Department, he said, send me a lawyer, we'll do something. The Justice Department did nothing but review it again. In all the affidavits, there's no, ref there's no action by anyone. Finally, last example. In May of 1974, the case finally wound up on the hands. Now, some four years after the crime, nearly two years after the CID had finished its reinvestigation in the hands of Victor Warheit, another staff attorney. In one month, he was able to read the entire file, all the envelopes, all the drawers of it, interview the judge in North Carolina, interview CID investigators, talk with other attorneys in the case, and conclude that he wanted to convene a grand jury investigation. He did that all in a month, and a month later, a grand jury was impaneled. The case was susceptible of resolution. 
the Court of Appeals found there was no adequate explanation for two and a half years of delay. Mr. Sagan, do you realize that neither you nor I can decide how the Department of Justice is going to run? If Your Honor pleases, if you're suggesting — Do you agree with that? I suppose that we don't have any direct influence, but I think the words of this Court have influence. What we're talking about — Well, but after all this, after all this, an indictment was had, the case was tried, and the jury returned a verdict. Isn't that — I'm not sure what these matters you're discussing have to do with the issue that you're presenting here. Well, there are two issues, Your Honor, and I must say that the argument has gone to the merits of the speedy trial argument. I did not want to leave the podium without an opportunity to express some of the facts on it. May I just return, then, to the appealability issue and say that Your Honor's own words in the Strunk case, I think, are very instructive. This case must be — all speedy trial cases must have the right to be appealed. Not all deserve a full hearing and argument. But in Strunk, a court of appeals attempted some solution short of dismissing the indictment, which this Court has held to be the only relief. They attempted to shorten the defendant's sentence by 292 days to accommodate what they found to be as it was an unreasonable 10-month delay. Your Honor set forth that you cannot correct a speedy trial defect by somehow playing games with the numbers. The only correction for the defect with speedy trial, that is, the denial of a trial that is less than speedy, once it has been denied, cannot be re-given to the defendant. Well, how does that bear on the appealability of the order denying such a motion? Your Honor, please, the Cohen doctrine, as reiterated in Abney, says that is this the kind of matter which requires will a right be lost if it is not, in fact, allowed to be appealed pretrial? And my suggestion to the Court is as follows. Number one, the speedy trial right means, if it means anything, the right not to be given a trial other than one that is speedy. That is, once the government has been delayed inordinately and without justification, there's nothing more the government can do to correct the defect. You cannot do anything to change the situation. If that is correct, if Your Honor pleases, then the defendant's right, the right of the accused, is not to be tried by a court which, in effect, has no capacity to correct in any way the wrong that has been done to him. And do you think it corrects it if six months, 12 months, 18 months later, the Court of Appeals decides there was no denial of a speedy trial and then you're back where you were with a loss of 18 months more? How conceivably could the concept of speedy trial be advanced by allowing interlocutory appeals if that's the only issue? Nothing in Abney on which you seem to rely would give the slightest hint. I think the criteria, if Your Honor pleases, in Abney are perfectly in synchronization with the facts and the circumstances of speedy trial. May I just say this, and my time, I see, is running out, but I think it's important I share with the Court the following. If you were to accept the government's concept that speedy trial, and I'm talking only now about Sixth Amendment speedy trial, I'm not talking about the Fifth Amendment due process issues, because in this case, the judge's decision is complete. There's nothing that can be changed in regard to the speedy trial decision by the trial. Just so I make it, just so it's straight, I gather now that you're saying that an order denying a motion to dismiss on speedy trial grounds is appealable, both when the judge denies it on the grounds that this really isn't a speedy trial claim at all, as in this case, I take it, but also if he denies it on the ground, yes, it is a speedy trial claim, but it's without merit. You think both are appealable? 
I must confess, Mr. Justice White, I did not perceive Judge Dupree's order as saying there was not a speedy trial claim well, at all. I, know, I think but he. You seem to think that if the, that if, if you uh, if if you say that you measure the time in this case only after the 75 indictment between then and trial, there isn't any speedy trial claim here. That's correct, Your Honor. And it's just a due process claim. We haven't even contended that at this stage. It's not even before the court. Our contention, it is the government's brief that has forced it, I think, upon the court the suggestion that somehow we had to prove prejudice. May I just finish with one sentence, Your Honor? That is to accept the government's contention that the speedy trial claim must wait after trial is to say that only the guilty will have the benefit of the speedy trial claim because only a person who's been convicted may then have the right to a speedy trial vindicated by the reversal of that conviction. We say in a case such as this one, where in fact there has been an extraordinary proceeding in which the finding was that the charges were not true, we say in a case such as this one that a person who goes to trial and is even acquitted it is not a vindication of the Sixth Amendment speedy trial right to say there's nothing more you can do. I think an argument by the government is somewhat disingenuous which says the only vindication for the right is you have to be convicted and then an appellate court will tell you that you should never have been trialed in the first place. Do you have anything further, uh, Mr. Mr. Chief Justice. First, briefly like to address <clears throat> the suggestion that the government somehow been inconsistent in the position we're taking in this case and the position we took in Marion about whether speedy trial claims are collateral. The threshold issue in Marion, there was an appealability issue whether the government could appeal under the old version of Section 3731, and that in turn depended upon whether the district court's dismissal of the indictment had resolved any issues going to the general issue in the case. Of course, a speedy trial issue is collateral to the issues to be litigated at trial in the sense that a resolution of the Sixth Amendment question does not require an in inquiry into the truth of any of the allegations in the indictment. But we think the Court must have meant something more than that when it used the term collateral in Cohen and Abney, or else virtually any pretrial motion to dismiss would be collateral, as Mr. Justice Marshall stated. We think that the Court meant uh, that an issue was collateral if it would be no easier to resolve the issue after trial than before. In other words, would it be affected in any way by the decision on the merits of the case? And speedy trial claims would be, as I mentioned earlier, if the defendant is acquitted, then not only is there no need to resolve the claim, but it goes a long way towards uh, suggesting that his allegations of prejudice were insubstantial. More importantly, if he's uh, convicted, then the record, the trial record, is generally indispensable in determining whether or not uh, his Sixth Amendment rights have been violated, and uh, no better proof of this need be offered than that uh, the courts of appeals almost always resolve post-conviction appeals raising speedy trial claims by reference to the evidence adduced at trial, as, of course, this court did in uh, Barker v. Wingo in analyzing uh, Barker's speedy trial claim. Now, secondly, it's true that the remedy for a speedy trial violation is dismissal of the indictment, but that doesn't indicate that the Sixth Amendment creates a so-called right not to be tried. The difficulty with respondents' reasoning, once again, is that dismissal of the indictment is the remedy for a wide ra range of violations, both constitutional and non-constitutional, such as all those involving defects in the indictment. If interlocutory appeals were to be allowed in each of these cases, under the theory that the nature of the remedy implies a right not to be tried, then the collateral order exception would swallow up the final judgment rule in criminal cases. In addition, Geller, could you just refresh my recollection? Marion, the appeal was by the government, wasn't it? That's and there correct. Had been the, the motion to dismiss had been granted. 
That's correct. But so the that you didn't you're under a different statute. And that case is entirely different. From well, that's case. another, of course, another uh, reason to distinguish it. But even there, we had we had to show that the Sixth Amendment, uh, the district court's resolution, the Sixth Amendment question, did not implicate any issues going to guilt or innocence. Well, or it was because it was a plea and abatement within the meaning of the old criminal appeals. Yeah. Yeah. And secondly, the uh, the argument that the nature of the remedy in Sixth Amendment cases implies a right not to be tried is inconsistent with this court's decision last term in Abney. As I mentioned in response to a question Mr. Justice Stevens asked me initially, uh, in that case, in addition to a double jeopardy claim, the defendants also raised the claim that their indictment failed to state an offense. And if they had been right, of course, the remedy would have been dismissal of the indictment. Nonetheless, this Court held that that's not the type of claim that can be appealed prior to trial. Finally, I'd like to discuss the reasons for the delay in this case, because Mr. Siegel has has used a large portion of his uh, argument trying to explain why the uh, delay was unfair. I think it's fair to say that much of the delay in this case was attributable to the strong feeling on the part of many persons in the criminal division of the Department of Justice. The charges as serious as the ones in this case simply should not be brought unless the government was absolutely convinced that they would ultimately prove successful. To begin with, we're not talking about a five-year delay the, uh, no one has ever claimed that the Department of Justice unduly delayed before June of 72 when it received the CID's report of its reinvestigation of the crimes. And the decision to go to the grand jury was made in the summer of 74. Respondent was indicted in January of 1975. So we're essentially talking about a two or two and a half year period. Now during that two or two and a half years, there were two prevailing views within the government. One group of attorneys thought that the case should be brought to a grand jury immediately with a view towards bringing charges against respondent. Another group of attorneys, while also convinced that respondent was guilty, frankly couldn't believe that we could convince a jury of that. Would this be a part of an ordinary argument on a speedy trial claim with the differing views or schools of thought within the criminal division? Well, both in resolving a Sixth Amendment speedy trial claim and a Fifth Amendment pre-indictment delay claim, the Court must, of course, analyze the reasons for the delay. Uh, well, but they're not before us on any record, uh, Mr. Well, Keller. The fact that uh, your friend uh, elected to use some of his time uh, going perhaps outside the record is no reason. Well, I think the that there is a record to support some of the statements I'm about to make, these uh, Statements were made in oral argument before both of the uh, lower courts in this case. One of the reasons I might say that there's no record in this case is that we think the district court, and correctly, analyzed this case as not raising any Sixth Amendment issues at all because of the four-year delay between the crimes and January 1975. Respondent was not under any formal accusation. So he quickly dismissed any Sixth Amendment argument without inquiring well, through testimony. Uh, yes, we do. I just wanted to give the court the impression that this is not a case in which the files laid in some dusty cabinet for four years with no one looking after the case at all. That's certainly the impression that respondent tries to give. During every moment from June of 1972 until an indictment was procured in this case, someone in the Department of Justice was trying to push this case further. But for reasons that I was about to get into, a number of the superiors in the department thought that the case should not be brought unless they could be absolutely certain that a jury would convict, and they had trouble believing that a jury would convict, not because they didn't think respondent was guilty, but because of the nature of the crimes, who the victims were, plus the fact that the government's evidence well, is... Mr. Geller, I, I repeat, uh, uh, the cogitations uh, of, uh, within the Department of Justice really aren't relevant to this issue. Well, 
I uh, merely wanted to give the Court the impression that there is, in our view, no substance to the allegation that the Fourth, Fourth Circuit made that the government proceeded at a leisurely pace or respondent suggestions that the government was uh, guilty of negligence or ineptitude. I point I wanted to make, and I'll close by saying that, in our view, the delay here was intended to protect respondents' rights by not bringing unfair charges. Mr. Geller, the factual matter that uh, you do try to develop was presented in the oral argument to the Court of Appeals. And the District Court. In just the same way that the factual justification was presented in the Labasco case, wasn't it? Well, Mr. Justice Stevens, uh, the facts that were that I was about to present were, were not disputed by anyone in the District Court or in the Court of Appeals. No, but this is not the first time that the government has justified delay by making by having the advocate state to an appellate court the reasons for the delay. Well, it's not just an appellate it's court. It's exactly the same thing in the Lavasco case. Well, without defending what happened in the Lavasco case, Mr. Justice Stevens, these, these allegations were made to the District Court. If the District Court had thought they were in any way contested, he could well have held an evidentiary hearing. But as I was about to say, there's been no uh, allegation. That I'm just suggesting the Court has approved the procedure you're following today. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. The case is submitted. <coughs> Here is the announcement of the Supreme Court decision, United States v. McDonald, May 1, 1978. The uh, judgment and opinion of the court in United States against McDonald will be announced by Mr. Justice Blackman. Well, this case comes to us by certiorari to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. The issue is whether a defendant who is indicted on a federal charge may appeal before trial a federal district court's order denying his motion to dismiss an indictment because of an alleged violation of his Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial. The respondent, Captain McDonald, was a physician in military service stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. In 1975, almost five years after Captain McDonald's wife and two children were murdered, he was indicted on three counts of first-degree murder in violation of a federal statute. Prior to trial, the federal district court denied a motion to dismiss the indictment because of the alleged denial of his Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial. The Fourth Circuit allowed an interlocutory appeal on the authority of a case it had decided earlier uh, with respect to an allegation of double jeopardy. By a divided vote, it reversed the district court's denial of respondents' motion to dismiss on speedy trial grounds and remanded the case with instructions to dismiss the indictment. The government's petition for rehearing with a suggestion for rehearing in bank was denied by an evenly divided vote. The panel majority recognized that the denial of a pretrial motion in a criminal case generally is not appealable and that the point presented is to be decided on appeal after trial. It drew an exception in this case, however, because of what it called the extraordinary nature of respondent's case. And then on the merits, it decided the speedy trial claim in favor of the respondent, again by a divided vote. And because of the importance of the jurisdictional question to the criminal law, we granted certiorari. Finality of judgment has been required as a predicate for federal appellate jurisdiction. 
and to qualify for departure from that general prohibition against piecemeal appellate review, three factors must be met. First, the trial court's order must constitute a complete, formal, and final rejection of the defendant's claim. Second, it must resolve an issue completely collateral to the cause of action asserted. And finally, it must involve a right that would be lost, perhaps irreparably, if review had to await final judgment. In an opinion filed today, we hold that a pretrial order rejecting a defendant's speedy trial claim does not represent a complete, formal, and final rejection in the trial court of the defendant's claim. The particular facts of the case, including an estimate of the degree to which delay has impaired an adequate defense, can be carefully assessed only after trial. And further, the speedy trial claim, unlike a double jeopardy claim, is not sufficiently independent of the trial's outcome to warrant pretrial appellate review. Speedy trial rights are not lost if review must await final judgment. By definition, those rights are already lost before trial. Allowing an exception to the rule against pretrial appeals in criminal cases for speedy trial claims would threaten, we feel, precisely the values manifested in the speedy trial clause of the Sixth Amendment. Accordingly, we reverse the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remand the case for further proceedings. Mr. Justice Brennan took no part in the consideration or decision of this case. Thank you, Mr. Justice Blackmun. After his conviction in 1979, United States v. McDonald was back in front of the Supreme Court, December 7, 1981, once again arguing his appeal on grounds that he did not receive a speedy trial. Submitted. We'll hear arguments next in the United States against uh, McDonald. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case is here on a writ of certiorari to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. The primary question presented here, and the one which I will devote most of my attention to in argument, is simply whether the speedy trial clause applies to a period when a person is under no form of restraint and has no charges pending against him. There are also two subsidiary questions presented here. First, if the Court rejects the government's view that the Speedy Trial Clause is not applicable to such a period, it is our contention, nevertheless, that the application of the Barker v. Wingo factors in this case demonstrates that there was no Sixth Amendment violation here. Second, respondent contends, as an alternative ground for affirmance, 
that in any event, the pre-indictment delay here violated the Due Process Clause. The background of this litigation is as follows. On February 17, 1970, respondent's wife and two children were bludgeoned and stabbed to death. Respondent called the military police, and when they arrived at the crime scene, he told them that he had been attacked by a group of intruders and knocked unconscious, and that when he regained consciousness, he discovered the bodies of his family. Respondent, who gave investigators a detailed account of his actions upon regaining consciousness, was originally viewed as a victim of the crime, not as a suspect. However, as the investigation proceeded, and the investigators came to realize that the physical evidence at the scene of the crime was inconsistent with several aspects of respondent's story, he did become a suspect. On April 6, 1970, respondent was advised that he was a suspect. He was relieved of his duties as a physician and confined to his quarters. On May 1, 1970, he was charged with murder under Article 30 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and pursuant to Article 32 of that code, an investigating officer was appointed to investigate the charges and recommend whether they should be referred to a court-martial for trial. After a hearing, the investigating officer recommended that the charges be dismissed for lack of evidence. On October 23, 1970, the commanding general of Respondent's Unit accepted the recommendation and dismissed the charges on the ground that there was insufficient evidence to warrant convening a court-martial. In December of 1970, Respondent was honorably discharged from the Army, and shortly thereafter, he moved to California and established himself as a practicing physician. At the Justice Department's request, Does the Army... Does the record show whether he is remarried? I don't think it's in the record. As far as I know, he hasn't. Uh, at the Justice Department's request, the Army Criminal Investigative Division continued its investigation. CID submitted a massive report on this investigation to the Justice Department in June of 1972. And in response to further specific inquiries for investigation from the Department, it submitted supplemental reports in November 1972 and August 1973. In the summer of 1974... Mr. Horowitz, is that uh, massive report as you referred to it, is that lodged here with the court? Uh, I'm not certain. I understand the parts of it are in the record and are lodged with the court. Grand jury was convened in the summer of 1974, and respondent was indicted in January of 1975. Respondent filed several pretrial motions in 1975 to dismiss the indictment including motions to dismiss on speedy trial and double jeopardy grounds. When the district court denied these motions, respondents took a pretrial appeal to the Fourth Circuit, which ordered the indictment dismissed on speedy trial grounds. In 1978, this court vacated the Fourth Circuit's decision on the ground that the denial of a motion to dismiss on speedy trial grounds could not be appealed before trial. On remand, the Fourth Circuit rejected respondents' double jeopardy claim and this court denied certiorari. The case was then remanded to the district court for trial. After the district court denied a pretrial speedy trial motion and the Court of Appeals denied a petition for writ of mandamus, respondent's trial commenced in July of 1979, and he was found guilty on three counts of murder. He again filed a motion to dismiss on speedy trial grounds after the trial, which was denied by the district court. And on appeal, the Court of Appeals held that respondent had been denied his right to a speedy trial and that the indictment should have been dismissed. Where is the respondent now? Is he incarcerated? 
No, he's uh, free on bail and working in California as a physician. Say that again. He's free on bail what? Working as a physician in California. And who freed him? Well, the uh, – Bail was denied at one time. At it? one time, yes. But in light of the Court of Appeals decision, I believe the district court uh, changed the bail conditions and allowed him out on bail. Did Judge Dupre make any finding as to whether there was prejudice as a result of the delay? Yeah, Judge Dupree uh, wrote an opinion, uh, which is reprinted in the appendix to the petition. I believe it's pages 56 to 63 that are relevant. And uh, he found there that he had been carefully watching during the trial for any signs of prejudice and that there was no prejudice at all as a result of the delay. Uh, I should note that the Court of Appeals' opinion uh, found that the primary part of the delay that it considered grounds for dismissal of the indictment was the two-year period between the submission of the CID report to the Justice Department and the convening of the grand jury. Now, the critical period here for this Court's attention is the period between the dismissal of the military charges in October 1970 and the return of the indictment in January of 1975. That is the period over which the parties are in dispute. Respondent's contention is that his speedy trial right attached during this period, one during which no charges were pending against him. That conclusion we submit is at odds both with the language of the Sixth Amendment and with the policies underlying the speedy trial clause. The Sixth Amendment provides, quote, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy trial. And it then goes on to enumerate several other protections that an accused is entitled to in the course of criminal prosecutions. Now, during the period after the dismissal of the military charges, respondent was not the subject of a criminal prosecution, nor was he the subject of a public accusation, and hence could be called an accused within the meaning of the Sixth Amendment. Thus, by the express terms of the constitutional provision, he had no right to a speedy trial. Indeed, the right makes no sense in this context because the government cannot reasonably be required to speedily try a person on charges that do not even exist. We'll resume there at 1 o'clock, Council. You may resume your argument. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As I mentioned before the break, we believe that the Speedy Trial Clause is not applicable to this period by its expressed terms because respondent was not accused within the meaning of the Sixth Amendment. This is quite clear from this Court's decision in Marion, where the Court specifically focused on the question of when a person becomes an accused such that his Sixth Amendment speedy trial right attaches. The Court explained at page 320 of its opinion in Marion, and I quote, it is either a formal indictment or information, or else the actual restraints imposed by arrest and holding to answer a criminal charge that engage this protection. 
Here, the government agrees that Respondent's Sixth Amendment right did attach when he was held to answer a criminal charge filed under Article 30 of the Code of Military Justice. But the government's constitutional obligation was completely satisfied, and dependency of this speedy trial right was necessarily extinguished by the speedy dismissal of that charge and Respondent's release from all restraints on his liberty. Well, if the government was completely free, why did they make this long report to the Department of Justice? Well, the government was freed of its obligation under the speedy trial clause, but that doesn't mean that it was freed of its obligation to try to bring the perpetrators of this crime to justice so they continue to investigate the crime. If they felt that they had enough evidence, they were still under an obligation to try to prosecute. Is that? Well, when they're, yes, certainly they were considering prosecution. As long as there was an unsolved crime, they were considering prosecution. Mr. Horowitz, there is some comment in the briefs about a change in the testimony of two witnesses. Do you have any comment about that? Well, I think we've explained in our reply brief that, first of all, the one witness really didn't change his testimony and explained why his medical opinion had changed. The second witness explained why she could not recall what she had been asked about when she was first interviewed and then later did recall by 1975. Neither one of these has anything to do with delay. And first of all, the speedy trial clause really doesn't protect the defendant against the strengthening of the government's case. What it protects him against is prejudice to his defense because of the passage of time. When the charges against Respondent were dismissed, the criminal prosecution was terminated and there was no charge left to which a speedy trial claim could attach. Now, Respondent argues that his case is markedly similar to that of Klopfer v. North Carolina. And I think it's instructive to address this contention because, in our view, it is the differences between this case, the situation of a defendant against whom no charges are pending, and the situation of the defendant in Klopfer that are significant for Sixth Amendment purposes. Under the State procedure used in Klopfer, the defendant was subjected to an unliquidated criminal charge for an indefinite period of time. The State simply took a pause in its prosecution of the defendant, a pause that could have lasted indefinitely, and it was free to pick up the prosecution again at any time, right where it left off, simply by calling the case for trial. Moreover, the statute of limitations was told during this period, and thus it was effectively eliminated as a protection for the defendant. Here, by contrast, the government could try Respondent only by beginning a prosecution from scratch, that is, by convening a grand jury, convincing a grand jury to return an indictment, and all of this would have to be done within the statute of limitations. Indeed, the Court's opinion in Klopfer indicates that a speedy dismissal of the charges against an accused satisfies the Sixth Amendment right just as surely as if he is given a speedy trial. The Court there noted at page 216 of its opinion in discussing the North Carolina procedure that the procedure provided no means for the defendant to obtain either a dismissal or a trial. Now, the policies underlying the speedy trial protection similarly have no applicability to a period when no charges are pending. And Marion ---- Sotomayor, in this case, as I understand it, the district court found there was no prejudice to the defendant by virtue of the delay. Had there been a finding of prejudice, would you then feel that the speedy trial clause was still inapplicable, or would you 
reach relief under the Due Process Clause? Well, in our view, the first question is whether the Speedy Trial Clause is applicable. If the Speedy Trial Clause is applicable to a period, then you look at the Barker v. Wingo factors, and one of those factors is prejudice. I just want to understand your position. You would feel that it's inapplicable even if a finding of prejudice had been made? That's correct. He would still have his Fifth Amendment argument, but the Sixth Amendment doesn't apply. In Marion, this Court discussed the policies that are the subject of the Sixth Amendment protection. A formal charge brought by the State is a public accusation that the government has probable cause to believe that the accused has committed a crime. This public accusation entails certain adverse consequences to the accused, and I'd like to examine those adverse consequences as listed by this Court at page 320 of its opinion in Marion, and that is reprinted in our brief at page 20. In our view, it is clear that these consequences are dispelled by the dismissal of the charge, just as surely as they would be dispelled if the accused had been brought to a speedy trial in those charges. Hence, a dismissal must terminate the applicability of the Sixth Amendment guarantee. The first interest identified by the Court is that the public accusation seriously interferes with the defendant's liberty. This is perhaps the most important interest protected because it is the one that is unique to the speedy trial context. Once a charge is brought, the defendant is under some restriction on his liberty. Even if he's not incarcerated, he would probably be released under certain conditions of bail. Of course, in this case, this interest is not applicable at all because the defendant was completely released when he was — when the military charges were dismissed against him and he was honorably discharged from the Army. He had no restrictions whatsoever on his liberty. Another interest identified by this Court — Mr. Horowitz, was he aware, however, of the ongoing investigation? Does the record show that? Well, the record shows that at some point he became aware of the ongoing investigation. I don't know at the exact time that he was discharged if he was, but certainly during this period he was aware of the investigation. Of course, that is always — that's going to be true in many cases of pre-indictment delay. And in Marion, this Court explicitly said that the fact that an accused — that a person may have some anxiety over a criminal investigation against them does not mean that his speedy trial record counts. Yes, but your many cases are distinguishable because here he had been charged and the charges were dismissed. That's true. The public obloquy to which he was subjected, we submit, was dispelled by the equally public exoneration that he received, that is, the dismissal of the charges and his honorable discharge. This put him in the same position as if he had been tried and acquitted. Indeed, he was — for the purposes of the public obloquy interest, he was in a better position because there had not even been a finding of probable cause against him, whereas had he been acquitted, the public could reasonably presume that there had been probable cause to charge him with a crime. You don't really mean he's in a better position if he'd been acquitted, do you? If he'd been acquitted, that would be the end of the case. That's right. But that's only because he would have been put in jeopardy and he couldn't have — another prosecution couldn't have been brought against him. But I think it's important to separate the interests that we're talking about. The speedy trial clause doesn't give him a right to jeopardy, to double jeopardy. Obviously, he would have preferred to be acquitted. But as far as these specific interests that the Court has identified in connection with the speedy trial clause, I don't think his — the public obloquy to which he was subjected after his dismissal was any worse than if he had been acquitted. Well, isn't there some analogy to the Bartkus against Illinois, the dual sovereignty concept of 
jeopardy that uh, e even though a state may try and acquit, the federal government uh, may still prosecute? Yeah, well, and so, so certainly the uh, defendant, after he's been acquitted by the state, if, well, may well learn that uh, the federal government is, RICA is uh, still investigating. Well, the rule is that uh, the Double Jeopardy Clause doesn't protect against a, a, a second prosecution brought by the federal government after by the state. Now, in this situation, it is considered to be a single sovereign. So if he had, in fact, been tried by the military. Well, I, I realize that, but I mean as to the uh, factual matter of anxiety and so forth. Well, as to the factual matter of anxiety, I think the only thing that's fair to say is that he's in the same position as a person who has been indicted. Excuse me, as a person who is under investigation and knows that he's under investigation. Now that or creates a certain. Or suggests a fellow who's been indicted by the state. Yeah, or someone who's been or indicted by the state. Convicted now, by the state. Now there's, an, there's, of course, an additional anxiety once he's subject to a pending indictment. That's the anxiety that the Speedy Trial Clause protects against. And that's the anxiety that's been dispelled by his public, by the dismissal of the charges. The lingering anxiety that he still has over the possibility that he may still be prosecuted is no different than what the defendant and Marion had. And I think just as the policies underlying the Speedy Trial Clause militate against respondents' position, so too do considerations of the sound administration of justice. As this Court explained in Levasco, there are important reasons for permitting the prosecutor to exercise his discretion as to whether and when to institute criminal charges. These considerations are equally applicable if the charge has already been filed and dismissed. And as we explained in our brief, there are many legitimate reasons for a prosecutor deciding to dismiss a charge that has already been filed. Now, the filing of a criminal charge against a defendant, particularly for murder, is a decision not to be made lightly or hastily. As this Court stated in Levasco, the fact that a prosecutor takes a long time and carefully considers whether to bring such a charge is an exercise of principles of fair play and decency, not in opposition to those principles. The administration of justice is advanced if a prosecutor is free to exercise his discretion without the threat of the severe sanction of dismissal of the indictment for all time hanging over his head if he does not act with what a court, with the benefit of hindsight, later determines to be sufficient expedition. Now, the respondent has suggested in this case, at page 19 of his brief, that he does not necessarily insist that there be a general rule applying the speedy trial clause to a period after dismissal. But he does contend that the protection should apply to this period in his special case. He does not really explain what factors justify a special exception for him. And indeed, we contend that whatever special aspects there are to this case argue even more forcefully against applying the speedy trial clause here. First, the charges were brought by a different prosecuting authority, by the military. So there's not the same specter of the same prosecutor making a mistake, bringing charges, and then dismissing them. Second, he was never indicted at all. And third, and perhaps most important, is the extraordinary severity of the crime involved here, which, which should argue against a special exception for, a spe for speedy trial purposes. <coughs> I would like to emphasize, however, that it is important that there be a general rule on which prosecutors can rely in this area. Prosecutors are entitled to know, when making the charging decision, whether the speedy trial time is running against them. They should not have to be exposed to the possibility that a court will later decide that a particular case calls for an exception 
and a sort of retrospective application of the speedy trial clause to a period where the prosecutor would not have expected the time to be running. This general rule, we suggest, is a simple one. It is the one that was stated by this Court at page 313 of its opinion in Marion. The Sixth Amendment guarantees the person who is subject to a public accusation the right to a speedy disposition of the charges pending against them. No more. Now, this case has a narrow focus, and that is the applicability of the Speedy Trial Clause. Of course, we recognize that a person has legitimate interests concerning the possibility of prosecution, even when no charges are pending against them. But our system of justice provides other protections for those interests, not the Speedy Trial Clause. For example, a person has an interest in repose against the possibility that charges will eventually be brought against them or that stale charges will be brought. The statute of limitations, as this Court has said many times, is the protection against for that interest. He also is entitled to protection against unfair pre-indictment delay or government misconduct. But the Due Process Clause protects him against that. And, of course, he has a, he's entitled to protection against a second prosecution once the first prosecution has advanced to a certain stage. But the Double Jeopardy Clause is the source of that protection. These protections are adequate to serve their purposes, and there is no need to supplement them here by wrenching the Sixth Amendment from its proper context to apply to a situation when no charges are pending against the accused. I would like to turn briefly, if I could, to the subsidiary questions that are raised by this case. On respondents' contention that he is entitled to a dismissal under the Fifth Amendment, we think this contention is insubstantial. There is clearly, by respondents' own admission in this case, no intentional or unfair government delay in this case. And therefore, there can be no Fifth Amendment violation. Moreover, as discussed in our brief, there was no actual prejudice to the accused's defense at trial. <coughs> With respect to the Sixth Amendment question, which this Court need reach only if it rejects the government's primary contention that the Speedy Trial Clause does not apply to this period, we suggest that the delay between the dismissal of the charges and the return of the indictment was justifiable and should not be held against the government. It must be remembered that this was an extraordinarily complex case that required detailed analysis of the evidence. The Court of Appeals itself recognized that there was no undue delay in the preparation and submission of the CID report up until 1972, and it took the Justice Department time to digest the material in this report and to decide whether a case could be made against the respondent. Moreover, a murder charge is a very serious matter, and it was the government's position, as it should be, that it did not want to charge the respondent with the murders unless it felt it could obtain a conviction. There were certain — there were obviously certain factors which the respondent has pointed to in his brief that made it at least questionable whether a conviction could be obtained in this case. They had to worry about the decision made by the Article 32 hearing already, which had held there was insufficient evidence to convene a court-martial, and the fact that the case was essentially circumstantial and that there was no obvious motive. Finally, I should point out that, contrary to respondent's suggestion, this careful consideration and time that the Department gave to the case was not in contract <coughs> — excuse me — was not in opposition to the de desires that they expressed for a prompt resolution of the case. Now, there are letters that uh, Respondent's Counsel sent to the Department of Justice 
asking about the case, asking about its status, asking that it be dismissed because of its innocence, and wondering what was happening. Well, do you mean before the indictment? Right. Well, then, right. During the period. That wouldn't be a matter of dismissing charges, but uh, no. abandoning. I'm sorry, that the, char- that the investigation be terminated and that the department uh, abandon its efforts to, to establish a case against them. Now, Respondent's Counsel did not ask that the government go forward promptly and indict him. Rather, they asked that it give careful consideration to all the factors before deciding to uh, proceed with an indictment. And uh, unfortunately, these letters were in the record. Excuse me. They're not reprinted in the joint appendix in this appeal. They were reprinted in the joint appendix in this court in McDonald 1. And uh, I'd like to read one portion from page 94 of that joint appendix. Uh, this is written by Mr. Mallory, Respondent's Counsel, and he, to uh, Mr. Sneed, the Deputy Attorney General, and he asks the Department, if at all possible, to take whatever steps you feel appropriate to ensure that Dr. McDonald's case is carefully evaluated. This letter was written in April of 1973, which is already into the time period that the Court of Appeals suggested the government should already have indicted him. The Court of Appeals suggestion essentially is that as soon as the government got this report, it should have run in, convened the grand jury, and indicted him. But here you have, in the middle of this period, respondent is still asking for careful consideration by the government before reaching such a decision. Another factor in the Barker analysis is the prejudice. I think the prejudice to the, to the defense is adequately discussed in the briefs. I would just like to point out that there's no support in the record for respondents' assertion that publicity and expense to which he was subjected continued unabated. Now, I think it's important to step back and consider what the Court of Appeals has done here. A man has been convicted of a brutal crime, the murder of his wife and two children, after what this court must assume to have been a fair trial. Nevertheless, he has been set free forever, never to answer for that crime. This has been done because the government took great care and time to consider his case before deciding to charge him. And an appellate court has determined, with hindsight, that the decision could have been reached in less time. The Sixth Amendment does not require such a miscarriage of justice. I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Mr. Horowitz. Um, the Court of Appeals did not reach the due process argument. Is That's that correct. But the respondent has raised it, and I think it's properly well, before the court. If the court were to agree with you on the Sixth Amendment claim, then what should this court do with the due process argument? Does it require any fact-finding? I don't think so. The respondent, uh, I mean, there is a matter of prejudice, but the respondent has never tried to put any evidence in. There have been... Because of the Sixth Amendment claims, there have been whatever evidence there would be on prejudice. So he says that the record is adequate to decide it, and we agree with that. Certainly, uh, Justice Harlan's concurrence in Clopper suggests that it's just a, 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 was to him a, almost a matter of semantics. Well, Justice Harlan was resistant to the idea of incorporating the uh, Bill of Rights uh, into to apply to the state, so he wanted to decide the case on due process grounds, but it was decided on Sixth Amendment grounds. Uh, did I understand you to say, Mr. Harvitz, and answer to Justice O'Connor, that if you prevail, are still other issues open in this case? Well, respondent has raised the Fifth Amendment issue as an alternative ground for affirmance. I think that issue is before the court. It wasn't decided below, and the court could remand, but I'm not sure it would serve any purpose to remand it. 
We but, think it's a pretty but otherwise, straightforward. No, the, the actual sixth, application of the Sixth Amendment to these facts would no longer be before this Court. No, but trial error is still open on remand, wouldn't it be? Oh, yes, on remand, yes. Mr. Spritzer. Mr. Chief Justice, Your Honors. Uh, as counsel has indicated, the respondent supports the judgment below on alternative grounds. First, we support the holding of the Court of Appeals on two occasions, the occasion of the interlocutory appeal and the present appeal, that the Sixth Amendment guarantee of speedy trial was violated in this case. Alternatively, and independently, we urge that the trial prejudice, which was found by the Court of Appeals after its very full examination of the record, warrants a finding that, they, that there was a violation of due process as well, though it is quite true that the Court of Appeals, having decided as it did the Sixth Amendment question, stated that it was not necessary for it to decide the Fifth Amendment issue. It did make findings with respect to the issues of trial prejudice. Which were contrary to the district courts. The district court uh, concluded that it had conducted a fair trial. That is quite so, Your Honor. That it and the jury. Pardon? It and the, it and the jury. Uh, it accepted the jury's verdict, certainly. Uh, I'd like to address first the the Sixth Amendment issue of a speedy trial guarantee. Before you do, Mr. Yes, sir. Is it your uh, submission that if you don't prevail on the Sixth Amendment, that we ought to uh, reach the other issue? Yes, that the findings made by the Court of Appeals as to trial prejudice would warrant an affirmance on and, that and if we didn't, if we did address it and didn't agree with you about that, what's left? There are numerous claims of trial error which the Court so of Appeals to, never reached. So it will have to go back in any event to the Court of Appeals for the resolution of those questions. If, right? there, was an affer if there was a reversal of the yeah. judgment, yes. I, I think counsel has indicated the sequence of events uh, in this case, that uh, the military made charges in the spring of 1970, uh, they were investigated uh, for a period of some six months by an Army investigating officer, charges having been brought by the military. He made an elaborate report finding that the charges were not true and recommending that the civilian authorities investigate the involvement of one Helena Stokely, of whom I'll say more later in connection with the issue of trial prejudice. Would your case be any different, Mr. Spitzer, if uh, no charges have ever, had ever been brought by the uh, military process and uh, the, the doctor had resigned his commission in the Army and gone back into uh, civilian life and then all of these other events occurred? Yes, under the Marion case, the public accusation makes the difference. That triggers as the court there held, the speedy trial provision of the Sixth Amendment. Uh, I think the court put it that arrest triggers the provision, e even though there has been no formal indictment. And so our case, so far as the Sixth Amendment uh, is concerned, 
rests upon the proposition that there had been an arrest, that Dr. McDonald was held under restraint, that this public accusation caused wide notoriety and public obloquy. But if, but if there had been no formal arrest and the Army had spent six months investigating it, would not that cloud have been essentially the same with or without an arrest? There's, it's certainly true, Your Honor, that suspicion may attach to somebody who is under investigation, who hasn't been arrested, uh, who hasn't been formally charged. Uh, as with many other constitutional protections, so also, I think, of the Sixth Amendment guarantee of speedy trial, uh, when a public act is taken by the sovereign, protections that weren't previously available come into play. And I think Marion makes quite clear, I think the government doesn't disagree that the speedy trial provision was activated by the arrest and the restraint. Uh, rather, it contends uh, that it was deactivated uh, during an interim period between the dismissal of the initial indictment by the military and the re-indictment by the civilian authorities. Now, I should say that the Department of Justice monitored this case from its very beginning. Uh, it was hardly a case of a uh, dual prosecution in any sense. Well, Mr. Why, shouldn't it, why shouldn't it be de de deactivated, uh, Mr. Spritzer? I, I suppose you're going to get to that. Right? Yes, I am. Let me first, uh, if I may, point out uh, what the findings of the Court of Appeals were with respect to the four factors in Barker against Wingo. As to the substantiality of the delay, it was a delay of close to two and one-half years after the investigation and the reinvestigation and a six-month period to report the result of the reinvestigation had taken place. As to that two-and-a-half-year period, both panels of the Court of Appeals found that it was inexcusable, that nothing was taking place, that the Department was letting the case lie on the shelf, that it reflected, in the words of Judge Bernahan below, a calloused and lackadaisical attitude and was irresponsible. Counsel, doesn't the Lavasco case permit that kind of a delay while the state weighs the evidence or the prosecuting authority? Uh, certainly, uh, when any legitimate prosecutorial purpose is being served, that would justify delay. What the Court of Appeals found is that nothing was being done, and it found that on the basis of evidence that was submitted to it. The United Lord. States Attorney responsible for this case, when, when asked why this had been delayed more than two years, said just bureaucracy. Are you suggesting, then, that in every mur murder case brought by the United States or, or any prosecution brought by the United States, that the courts are free to weigh so, uh, the diligence of the government in bringing the case? I am suggesting that where a prosecution is initiated and then dismissed, and then there is a continuing investigation in which the same person is the target, and that is accompanied by wide notoriety, and he is on notice that he is still an accused person because just, uh, McDonald, through his counsel, was requesting throughout this period that the department make a resolution of the matter. 
I'm saying in those circumstances, the interests implicated by the Sixth Amendment continue to play a role. Well, then the you want a rule held. just for this case, basically. No. No, I think in any case where there is the triggering of the Sixth Amendment and where there is a subsequent dismissal of the indictment, and that is followed by an inordinate delay that the government has the burden of establishing some plausible and legitimate reason for that delay, and the court here found twice over that the government had not been able to do that. Aren't you suggesting, in effect, that any time there is an ongoing investigation, the subject of the investigation is a de facto accused under the uh, sixth, under the uh, Fifth Amendment? No, I'm relying on the fact that I think is a critical fact on the basis of the Marion decision, that here there had been a public accusation, there had been a charge, an arrest and an indictment which was dismissed. Seven of the federal circuits have considered in speedy trial cases periods that fell between the dismissal of an initial indictment and a re-indictment. And several of those courts of appeals have pointed out that if a prosecutor could avoid all of the requirements of a of the speedy trial guarantee by the expedient of now processing or requesting a dismissal without prejudice and then re-indicting at leisure, that the interests protected by the speedy guarantee uh, would be thereby defeated. In this case, the Court of Appeals found that there was an inordinate delay, that there was no justification for it, that the effects of the initial charge continued unabated uh, that they cause stress and obloquy, and further, and I mean to develop the question of prejudice, that the long delay resulted in serious impairment of the defendant's ability to defend against the charges. Well, you wouldn't suggest that there aren't countervailing societal interests in the solution of a crime such as this, would you, Mr. Spitzer? Of course, there is a societal interest in the solution of all crimes, Your Honor. I wouldn't suggest otherwise. Uh, I do suggest that there is not a societal interest in neglect, in inordinate delay, and that's what the Court of Appeals found to have taken place here, because that exposes the individual to all the dangers, the pressures and the dangers of impairment of his defense against which the speedy trial guarantee is designed to safeguard one. I wanted to conclude my reference to the uh, Barker against Wingo factors. I've mentioned the substantiality of the delay, the court's findings as to reasons for delay. It also found, as I think the court is aware, uh, that Dr. McDonald persistently asserted his right to have the matter promptly resolved. Uh, and that brings me then uh, to the question of prejudice. And I going to turn now to the question of prejudice at trial, quite apart from the factors of pretrial prejudice, uh, the matters of stress, uh, anxiety, financial expenditure. Dr. McDonald's account of the crime 
was that his home was invaded by four intruders. No motive for charging him with this crime has ever been suggested or shown. Dr. McDonald stated that he was first attacked. He, in fact, was found to have suffered 17 wounds, one that penetrated to the lung. The government's theory, when it finally brought the case by going to the grand jury almost five years after the crime had occurred, was based entirely upon a hypothetical reconstruction of the crime. The government produced experts who testified that in various particulars, physical artifacts, laboratory tests, showed inconsistencies between Dr. McDonald's account and their findings. Let me refer the court was part of that uh, related to the difference in the nature of the uh, wounds on the deceased people and the nature of the wounds on the no, 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 no. There's no indication of that, Your Honor. Uh, Dr. McDonald was initially ultimate, attacked and maybe... One ultimate indication is that the three people died of the wounds and one didn't. Oh, I, th I thought Your Honor was referring in the nature of the wounds to the kind of instrument that might have been used. Or whether they could be self-inflicted. There was testimony that uh, the wounds that Dr. McDonald suffered, like those that were true of the wounds suffered by the other members of the family, had been caused by a sharp instrument. Uh, Dr. McDonald's account was that he was severely attacked, whether the intruders, we don't know, he was rendered unconscious, thought that he had uh, likewise been killed, uh, we don't know. Certainly the, the wound that penetrated to the lung was uh, a life-threatening one, which raised serious questions as to whether that could have been or would have been self-inflicted. I wanted to refer the court, if I may, to the Court of Appeals finding based upon its full examination of this lengthy record, and it was a six or seven week trial. The court found there was almost certain memory erosion on the part of the government's investigators. Where do we find that, that in, 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 in Mr. Spitzer? It's in the Court of Appeals' opinion. Do you want me to locate the page? Uh, if you just give me the page. Well, unless you don't have it handy. Pardon? Unless you don't have it handy. I'll provide the reference. I think, uh, well, if I may, I'll provide the reference in a moment, Your Honor. It said almost certain memory erosion, and I, this is a quotation uh, that I'm reading from in my brief on the part of the government's investigators, and that this, and I quote again, rendered it virtually impossible, unquote, for the defense to probe their recollections and to test the premises and assumptions upon which their scientific speculation, and scientific speculation is again the language of the court, rested. Now, in a case in which the government's whole case 
rests upon a hypothetical reconstruction. I think a finding that the defendant's ability to test that case effectively by cross-examination was rendered virtually impossible is certainly a finding of severe prejudice which goes to the issue of due process as well, of course, as to the issue of prejudice uh, if the court decides that the Sixth Amendment here applies. But I'd like to talk about a more concrete instance of trial prejudice to which the trial court, I'm sorry, the Court of Appeals also adverted. Well, may I ask you, Mr. Spitzer, what, what was the vote on the petition for rehearing? In the it was court? a divided court. Equally divided? Yes. I think that reflects a division on the court as to the Sixth Amendment issue. I don't, the opinions don't indicate that they were seriously addressing the alternative claim that I'm now advancing. <coughs> Dr. McDonald, when the military police arrived following his call for help, gave a description of the four intruders. One of them, he said, was a woman, the other three males. He described the woman as having blonde hair, wearing a white floppy hat, this was February, mind you, and boots. He described one of the other men as a black male wearing an army-type field jacket with sergeant stripes. Based on that description, a Fayetteville police officer who was called into the case promptly by the military police decided that he thought he knew who that woman was. That officer, an officer named Beasley, had used Helene Stokely as a drug informant. Helene Stokely was the daughter of an Army colonel at Fort Bragg who had left home promptly after graduating from high school, had entered the drug culture in Fayetteville. Beasley went to Stokely because he knew that the description that Dr. McDonald gave seemed to answer her description, and he knew further that her close friend and associate was a black male who typically wore an army-type field jacket with E6 stripes. Promptly when he went to see Stokely, she admitted, I said in the brief, it's a hedged admission, and I think that's a fair characterization, she said, I had it in my mind that I was there, but I was heavy on mescaline, which is, of course, a narcotic. Two or three days later, Helene Stokely's neighbor, one Posey, who had seen her returning to her home at about 5 a.m. on the morning of February 17th, and the crime took took place during the hours between midnight and 5 a.m. Posey spoke to Helene Stokely, and she told him that she had held the light during the commission of the crime, but that she herself would not kill anybody. Dr. McDonald had told the military police when they arrived on the scene that the female intruder had a flickering light on her face as if she were holding a candle. Sometime later, 
Stokely was interviewed by an Army CID agent named Brizantine. She told Brizantine that she had been involved, and she spoke of blood on the bed, and the words, kill the pigs, had been written on the headboard of a bed in the McDonald home. She told him further that she would name the participants in this crime if granted immunity. She was not granted immunity, of course. Stokely and all made admissions to seven different out-of-court auditors. Acquaintances, friends, law enforcement officers. Many of these admissions, in fact, I think I might say all of these admissions were fragmentary, and she would immediately equivocate for reasons that are obvious. She would make an admission, apparently impelled by the feeling that she needed to relieve herself of her feelings, and then she would promptly turn around and say, well, I won't say any more, I've already said too much. Let me now turn to the finding of the Court of Appeals with respect to Stokely's testimony. The court said that the failure of Stokely to verify, because Stokely, when she took the stand, claimed she no longer remembered what had happened on the night in question, the failure of, to verify Dr. McDonald's account from the witness stand may well have been disastrous to the defense. Had she testified, Judge Murnahan goes on, as it was reasonable to expect she might have testified, the injury to the government's case would have been incalculably great. And then he adds that the reason she asserted under oath was failure of memory. And finally, that the government's inexcusable delay was a probable cause of the defendant's inability to get an account from her when she took the stand. Stokely, incidentally, did acknowledge that she remembered where she had been at, at midnight on February 17th. Doesn't the Court of Appeals also say that the possible possible reasons why Stokely did not so testify are several, and then in the footnotes say a likely one is that she was not on the scene of the crime at all? I'm going to deal further in a few moments, if I may, to the, some of the circumstances which corroborate, independent circumstances that corroborate Stokely's admissions. Of course there are other possibilities, but the credibility of Stokely's story was for the jury, had she, been, had she testified. And the court has made a finding here that a probable cause of her not appearing to testify before the jury, at least as to these matters, was the long delay for which the government was responsible. Now, it's perfectly true also that there's another possibility, that she may have been feigning when she was called into the public forum uh, a lack of memory as to these events, because she did remember where she was at, noon, at midnight, and she did remember returning to her home at 5 a.m., 
So it appears that she was abroad during this five hours when the crime took place, and nobody has ever offered any innocent explanation of that activity. In that subculture that you described she was part of, was there anything unique about uh, roaming and prowling around in those hours, as there might be for some other people not part of that subculture? No, I wouldn't suggest it was unique. I think it was probably commonplace. Uh, it also appeared from the one of Stokely's admissions uh, that she had testified, uh, I'm sorry, she had stated out of court uh, that one of the parties to this crime had been driving a blue Mustang and she was seen by Posey returning at 5 a.m. in a blue car with several men. So there is a loss of Stokely's testimony. She was called as a witness and she claimed she no longer could remember 10 years later uh, what had taken place and she denied any recollection of all the out-of-court statements that she had made to the various auditors who heard those admissions against interest. I was about to say, to, uh, Justice Rehnquist, that there's also the possibility that she was feigning loss of memory on the stand. I don't think that would alter the conclusion that the defendant was seriously prejudiced because it is not possible to say that she would have had the temerity to deny recollection if this trial had been promptly held or that the jury in that circumstances would have credited her denial of recollection. But those general types of questions are left to juries in criminal cases subject to the <clears throat> motion for new trial, etc. cetera. Uh, are, are they not? Yes, the concern here is that the Stokely story never got to the jury. Well, that too is a factor that is generally weighed by the jury. They never heard the story. They never heard what she could have testified to, would have testified to, had she testified in court as she had spoken out of court. But she did, she did take the stand in court, didn't she? She took the stand and then, when questioned, denied she had any recollection of the relevant five-hour period. But she remembered why she didn't have any recollection. She, at least she testified as to why she didn't have a recollection. She certainly said she'd been on drugs. Well, she remembered that. Yes. Well, if she had testified uh, in court the day, the, uh, the day after the event, if she'd have said the same thing, the jury would even... We don't know would, that, would, Your would, Honor. Well, you don't know that she wouldn't. Don't. If you believe her uh, ten years later, uh, that's what she would have testified to the day after. The prejudice that Stokely was unavailable and the prejudice resulting from the fact that one could not determine how she would have testified had she been promptly brought to the witness stand, could have been cured if, if the jury had been permitted to hear, as we think it should have been permitted to hear, the admissions against interest that she made. The trial court excluded the testimony of the seven witnesses who heard all of these out-of-court admissions. That we submit was an ir indis <clears throat> I'm sorry. That was an indefensible ruling, we believe, and one which the government urged upon the court. 
The district judge's reason for that ruling, as he stated it, was that Stokely was a pathetic figure, and she had equivocated. Was that passed on by the Court of Appeals? Yes, in this sense. Perhaps I should modify that. The Court of Appeals said the government may rule having objected to the admission of the out-of-court declarations, but we find it unnecessary to decide definitively that evidentiary issue. So if it was an indefensible ruling, and if we agreed with the government and reversed its judgment, that issue would be open. That issue would be open. And I am referring to the substance of these out-of-court declarations for two reasons. One, to show the prejudice resulting from the unavailability of the Stokely story, which the Court has, the Court of Appeals, attributed as a likely consequence of the government's delay. Secondly... Well, you're assuming the truth of what the out-of-court statements would have... You're assuming the truth of what those witnesses would have testified to. I don't have to prove what, of course, can't be proved here in this Court, the truth of those out-of-court declarations to say that... If they were inadmissible, it's because they are unreliable. Well, the rules of evidence say that there must be corroborating circumstances. The rules of evidence do not say that the declarant must be a person of good character and habits rather than a pathetic figure. And here there were repeated corroborating circumstances. The fact that the very description that McDonald gave when the police first arrived led the police directly to somebody who in turn made an admission that she had been there. I take it your judgment would be that if the case only involved this evidentiary issue and you won on it, the judgment would be reversed. I mean, the conviction would be set aside. No, I think if that question did not go also to the question of due process, a new trial would be mandated. That's what I mean, a new trial. What I'm suggesting is that the unavailability of the Stokely testimony because of her asserted loss of memory, resulting, as the Court of Appeals said, was likely to be the consequence of the long delay, that that was compounded when it could have been allayed or cured had the government not insisted and successfully insisted upon the exclusion of this critical evidence. Here was the one identified living person other than the defendant who could have spoken to the question whether there was any truth in his account. Evidence, I think, that any observer of this case would regard as the most critical in deciding whether there was truth to Dr. McDonald's account and the jury never heard a particle of that testimony. Thank you. Mr. Horowitz. A couple of points, Mr. Chief Justice. I don't think it serves any purpose to really discuss here whether Helena Stokely committed these murders or not. I would like to say one thing, though. This contention was never raised in the district court at all. 
or on the first appeal. It was raised for the first time on the appeal in 1979 before the Court of Appeals. I suggest to you that it is not quite the obvious prejudice that the respondent suggests. In fact, I think as we pointed out adequately in our brief and as the dissenters in the Court of Appeals suggest, there was absolutely no prejudice at all in this regard. She testified shortly after the crimes. She stated, rather, shortly after the crimes that she didn't remember where she was because of drugs, the same thing that she said at the trial. There's just no support in the record for any finding of prejudice to the defense. Second, there's also no support in the record for finding that the Justice Department was indifferent during this period when it was deciding whether to prosecute. In fact, the record indicates that the case was always under active consideration by the Department. Of course, nothing happened in the sense that an indictment wasn't brought until it was decided, but that's because there was an internal dispute in the Department as to whether the evidence was sufficient to get a conviction, and the Department took its time in deciding that it, until it decided that it finally could get a conviction and to bring the charges. Um, in response to what Mr. Justice Brandon said before, uh, there are grounds for remand to the uh, Court of Appeals, but there, <clears throat> if this Court decides a due process question, there are no grounds on which the indictment could be dismissed by the Court of Appeals, only grounds on which a new trial could be ordered. Um, with respect to getting back to the Sixth Amendment question, I think it's important to point out that the prosecution does not avoid the speedy trial guarantee by the expedient of dismissing the indictment and then reindicting. The period during which the indictment is pending is always counted for the speedy trial guarantee, so you can't just dismiss the indictment and then go in the next day and get a new indictment and evade the speedy trial clause that way. And I suggest that prosecutors have better things to do than to go out and get indictments and then dismiss them and then wait 10 years and get another indictment. That just doesn't happen unless there's a good reason for it. And finally, um, I would like to point again to, uh, sorry, to this letter from Mr. Malley with respect to uh, respondents' contention that the adverse effects of the charge were continued unabated during this period when no charges were pending against them. In this letter, as I pointed out, he asked the government to consider, carefully consider before uh, bringing an indictment against him. And he points out that during the period since the military proceedings ended, he has been getting his life back together. And then he goes on to say, some of the things you must consider is any sort of formal attempt to accuse him again will result in devastating publicity, enormous financial loss, and personal humiliation to him. Thus, respondent himself has, has recognized that there's a big difference between the period when no charges are pending after they've been, they've been dismissed and a period when a formal charge is pending. This is at pages 101 to 102 of the Mr. Joint Horowitz, uh, how many judges who wrote opinions in this case found no prejudice? Well, uh, the dissenters on rehearing addressed the, the prejudice issue, so there Let's it was start, five start to five. With the start with the district judge. Well, district judge found no prejudice, so that makes it six to five, I guess, in favor of no prejudice. Uh, I think the, the dissenters' opinion is quite adequate in this regard. And only two actually joined an opinion of prejudice, of prejudice, as I recall. That's correct. The other ones, we don't know what they did. They just didn't vote for rehearing. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. The case is submitted. We'll hear arguments next in... Uh Here is the Supreme Court's decision, March 31st, 1982, United States versus McDonald. Uh, I have
have the judgment and opinion of the court to announce in United States against McDonald, and for reasons stated in the opinion for the court filed with the clerk today, the judgment of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit is uh, reversed, and the case is remanded to that court for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. Justice Stevens concurred in the judgment. Justice Marshall, with whom Justice Brennan and Justice Blackman joined, filed a dissenting opinion. Thank you.